is KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. This is Media Literacy Week, and we'll hear from Erin McNeil, founder of the nonprofit Media Literacy Now. I started to work on making sure that the state policymakers are elevating media literacy as a priority in our schools. That's their job. Also, the San Luis Obispo Botanical Garden has something for everyone, from kids to self-proclaimed plant nerds. So we are really a plant library, a living plant museum. Besides making connections with nature, we are an education facility. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, October 24th, 2022. I'm Carol Tangerman. We'll start with a look at San Luis Coastal School District Bond Measure C-22 on Agenda Breakdown. Welcome to Agenda Breakdown, a podcast that explores how cities and counties make decisions and how you can have a say. I'm Kim Bishop, and today we're going to talk about a San Luis Obispo school bond measure that aims to make local schools safer. Voters who live in the San Luis Obispo Coastal Unified School District will soon weigh in on Measure C-22, a school bond proposal that would pay for upgrades at 12 elementary and middle schools as well as Pacific Beach High School. The bond supporters say our aging local schools are overdue for repairs and safety updates. Here to tell us about the details is Jay Beck, a local banker and a parent of school-aged children in our district, who's one of three co-chairs on the Taxpayers for Safe Schools Committee. Welcome, Jay. Thanks, Kim. Happy to be here. So if it passes, what will this bond do? The purpose of this bond is to raise funds for capital improvements to the school district's 10 elementary schools, two junior high schools, Laguna Middle School and Los Osos Middle School, as well as Pacific Beach High School. And what kinds of repairs and upgrades are we talking about? First of all, the school district has already commissioned a comprehensive study uh, that can be found on their website. It's about a 225-page document where they did a survey of every campus that they have within, their, within the district. Uh, that survey identified up to over $500 million worth of potential improvements that need to be done. The majority of those improvements, though, revolve around safety, perimeter fencing, locking doors for classrooms, improved HVAC systems, air conditioning for all classrooms, better heating, better filtration for you know, health, uh, improvements to the fields and the facilities uh, on campus like gyms, cafeterias, that type of thing that provide a lot of services to students while they're at school as well as outside of school. Updated classroom technologies and a big one, replacing roofs, adding solar, improving lighting and other just general furnishings and, and kind of facility use items. Yeah, I've seen some photos on the campaign's Instagram of ceilings that have plastic bags hanging from broken panels and uh, and things like that. And, and honestly, it was a little surprising to me that our schools can be in that kind of shape. Yeah, well, it's interesting, right? You have maintenance, but you have to remember a lot of our school campuses that we're discussing here were built in the 1950s, 1960s. And things just have a useful life. And while you can repair and maintain, and I think the school district has done a decent job of doing that with the budgets that they have, you still need to make these big capital in investments. And again, the, the roofs are a big one. We see that across the board. And yeah. How much money is being raised? The bond will raise $349 million. Now, where does that money come from? 
The bond will be paid by property tax assessments on properties located within the school district's boundaries. That's Avila, San Luis Obispo, Los Osos, and Morro Bay. And the way that'll be done is on an assessment of $49 per $100,000 of assessed value. And that's an important distinction to make. Obviously, many of us who've owned properties for a long time have the benefit of Prop 13. Uh, So the school district calculates that the average property owner has an assessment of $500,000. So it'll be about a $250 a year or about $20 a month if you break it down uh, assessment to uh, property owners. Is there an end point for that? It's a 30-year bond. And will any of that money go to teacher salaries? No. Uh, The funds raised by this bond measure would go exclusively towards facility upgrades, improvements, uh, and no money will be used for salaries. So didn't we just pass a different school bond in the last election? Uh, We did. We had Measure D. It wasn't the last election. It was actually back in 2014, Uh, so eight years ago. We are currently seeing those funds in action at Morro Bay High School and San Luis Obispo High School, which were the two campuses uh, that benefited from the Measure D. Uh, those funds are nearing completion. Uh, the school district reports that all that work has been done on time and within budget, and they expect to have all of the work done in the next 18 to 20 months. And is there a way that taxpayers can go see the work that's been done and see evidence that everything that was promised has been delivered? Yes. The school district has been holding open houses at the San Luis Obispo High School and the Morro Bay High School for people to go through and see the work that has been done. They just, as I mentioned, just held open houses last weekend. Uh, We might be looking at having them provide other additional ones for people who are interested in seeing. But at the same time, if you do have students at those campuses, obviously I welcome you to go. What percentage vote does this bond measure need to pass? Uh, The bond measure will require a 55% yes vote from the district's voters. Okay. And so assuming it passes, uh, what sort of accountability plan is there? Like, How can we be sure that the bond money is going to be spent as promised? So there are a couple of accountability items in place as part of this. Uh, First of all, once this passes, there will be a citizen oversight committee created by district uh, residents, parents, who will be responsible for making sure that the funds are allocated and spent in the right places and in line. The way the actual plan of the budgets for these will come about is once the money has been raised, the teachers, parents, and principals at each of the campuses will work with the school district to create a plan. That money goes in front of the Citizen Oversight Committee and also has to be approved by our school board. So there are multiple steps involved at the school board level as well as the Citizen Oversight committee to make sure that these funds are being used as, as planned. Who has endorsed this measure so far? So we have a number of personal endorsements from community leaders already, but one thing we'd really like to share and that we're really proud of is that, one, we are the only measure endorsed by the Slow Chamber of Commerce on November 8th ballot, and we just received an endorsement from the Tribune's editorial board as well. You're listening to Agenda Breakdown. I'm Kim Bishop, and I'm here today with Jay Beck of Taxpayers for Safe Schools. I think it's really important to note that a project of this size can't be paid for out of the school's operating budget without significant cuts to teacher salaries and other operating expenses. Currently, 85% of the district's budget goes towards teacher salaries and operating costs, and only 10 to 15% can be allocated towards these types of maintenance, capital improvements to our facilities. If the school district was tried to do this over time, 
by cutting salaries, by allocating these funds, it would take 30 years for these projects to get done. And we just don't have that kind of time. The other thing that's important to note with all of this is, and we do get this question a lot, is where's the state? Why can't state funds be used to pay for this? A bond measure like this is the only way that local school districts have to raise funds to pay for these types of capital improvements. There are no state funds available. However, I will add, back in 2014, when this district was able to get Measure D funds, the state was able to provide matching funds. You could apply for a grant if you had your own funding source. So it's instrumental, one, for these improvements to happen. We have to approve this locally. We have to support this as taxpayers locally in order for these improvements to be made. So Jay, why did you personally get involved in this campaign? That's a great question. When I got a phone call from the uh, school district's representatives asking if I would be a part of this, like many parents and employees and, and people these days, I was like, gosh, I, I'm so busy. But I wanted to hear what they had to say. And I happened to take the call as I was sitting at a table with my daughter, who is a student at one of the schools. And she's listening to one side of the conversation as I'm going through this. And when I finished the call and I hung up, she looked at me and she said, Dad, if this goes through and you do this, does this mean that the bathrooms at my school that we can't use because there's leaks? And does that mean those will get fixed and that we don't have to walk all the way across campus to use bathrooms? Does that mean that'll get better? And when she asked me that question, it just for me, it was like, yes, I need to do this. I need to be a voice for the students, for our community, for the teachers in our schools who have to teach in classrooms that are not current, they're not up to date, they're cold, they're hot, they've got leaky roofs. Somebody needed to be a voice for this campaign. The other thing I, I really would like to kind of emphasize again is that a bond measure is the only tool that the school district has to make improvements of this size and scope. We have to raise the money ourselves. It's us helping ourselves and making that decision to help ourselves. And so I just really want to emphasize that if we don't do this, if we, if we feel that this is something that we can't do as a community, these improvements will get stretched out over years. And, you know, that cost, that, you know, continued impact on our students and our teachers, that's just going to be like a, it's almost like a tax. It's an anti-tax. It, it, it drags us down. It pulls down our community. And that's something that I, I really don't want to happen. One of the things I did in terms of just learning more about this is I pulled my own property tax statement. You know, and I, I, just, I look at the bill every year, but I seldom actually go through and look at it you know, myself. And so you go in and you see, okay, what's, what's your property tax assessment? But you know, we already have, we mentioned Measure D earlier. We voted that in 2014. We also voted for a Cuesta College improvement bond back in 2014. And we have the uh, charges associated with the state water project for San Luis Obispo. So it was really interesting to go through that and look at the money that we've invested in our high schools via Measure D, the money that we invested in Cuesta College. And now if we are able to get Measure C voted through, how cool is it to live in a community that has made this massive over a half a billion dollar investment in our schools from TK all the way up through the second year of junior college. We should be proud of ourselves for living in a community 
that is willing to devote that kind of support to our students and to our teachers. Yeah, that says a lot about the community's priorities. Yeah, it really does. Thank you so much, Jay. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you, Kim. Now it's time for today's action item. Your ballot and voter guide should be arriving in the mail any day now. Read the section on Measure C-22 to get acquainted with the full text of the measure, and that includes an impartial analysis by county council and the argument in favor. I would tell you to read the argument against as well, but nobody submitted one. If you don't want to wait for the physical document, you can find the same information online at the County Clerk Recorder's website, and I will link to that page in the show notes. Conveniently, that is also where you can make sure you are registered to vote at your current address. You have until October 24th to register online, and you can register in person on Election Day. Today's episode was produced by Samantha Reardon with music by Wes Bischoff. If you like the show, you can go to agendabreakdown.com to listen to past episodes and follow us on social media. You can also find us and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Bischoff. Thanks for listening to Agenda Breakdown. After this episode was recorded, KCBX learned that there was a typo on the November 8 ballot. A percent sign was used inadvertently instead of a cent sign in the description of the school bond measure C-22. The correct bond rate is 4.9 cents per $100,000 of assessed value. It's Media Literacy Week, so contributor Beth Thornton talked with Aaron McNeil, founder of the nonprofit Media Literacy Now, about media literacy education and the digital citizenship and Media Literacy Act introduced in Congress. This is Beth Thornton, and my guest today is Aaron McNeil, president and founder of Media Literacy Now. McNeil was a journalist and also a former Army reservist. She's also a mom. She started Media Literacy Now in 2013 to advocate for media literacy education around the country. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to Issues and Ideas. Hi, Beth. Uh, let's begin with, with your story and how you became an advocate for media literacy. There's a few reasons why I became an advocate for media literacy. And one of the most important ones is, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a mom. And I was seeing how the media messages that my children were uh, experiencing, were seeing, were, were engaging with, were potentially shaping them and their outlook on life and, you know, giving them certain messages about who they were and who they could be, uh, delivering certain messages about values that didn't necessarily comport with what I wanted them to learn. So I think that was the probably the most important reason. Um, I'm also a former journalist, and I could see that people were really having a hard time understanding the connection between credible journalism and as the watchdog of government large institutions and the way that provides the underpinning of our democracy. Define media literacy for us. Well, we have our own definition at Media Literacy Now. There's, There's a number of definitions. So we like to say that media literacy is the ability to decode messages in all forms and then to also understand the systems of media. So in other words, understanding why this message appeared before me 
at this particular moment. Um, you know, we used to see just static billboards and we would know that appeared because I'm driving past it. But now sometimes there are street level billboards that can read your face, maybe your expression, or maybe even know exactly who you are and deliver a message directly to you. So that part of being media literate has become much more complicated. Uh, then um, the other part is then understanding how these messages are affecting us, how they're shaping us as individuals and as a society. And then finally, to be able to create media thoughtfully, conscientiously. So just as you learn to read and write, you learn to decode, read the media messages, and then also create them yourself. Explain what your organization does and how you are involved with policymaking and legislation around media literacy. There are a lot of people who have been doing a lot of work in media literacy for decades. You know, lots of research, academic research, teachers and schools that have been working to get media literacy into the classroom. There have also been many organizations that are creating curriculum or they're creating after school programs. And yet we're, we're not seeing that enough of these lessons and enough of the curriculum is getting actually into the schools, K through 12, across the various subject areas. Um, and and uh, certainly not in a way that's that's equitable and it isn't reaching all the the young people that really that really need it. You know, like schools that are lower resource, for example, or rural areas, or just younger students. We see some in the high schools, but not necessarily in the younger ages. So, what I realized when I started this work was that part of the problem was that. People on the ground, the teachers and the principals, they see that there's an issue and they see that they would that this is something that students need, even just to learn in today's environment. Um, but they're not getting the support from the from the state, from you know higher levels. So they end up uh, trying to squeeze it in someplace, maybe, or trying to find a way. And that doesn't seem like that's not the solution to this really huge, huge global problem that we're seeing. We, you know, this is just like a tsunami over our lives. <laughs> and we can't leave it up to the individual teacher in the classroom to try to do her best to, to uh, help young people through this, or even to the parents who are completely overwhelmed um, by this new world that we're living in of digital media. And really, and, and really by, you know, billion dollar multinational corporations that are working to get around them, uh, not to mention the foreign interference in our elections that really affects all of us. So this isn't an individual problem. It's not something that individual teachers and schools should be left uh, to take care of themselves and individual parents. This is, this is a society-wide problem. So um, I realized that we need to take more of a society-wide approach and we need to look at the barriers that are preventing K-12 through media literacy. And so that's why I started to work on make, making sure that the state policymakers are elevating media literacy as a priority in our schools. That's their job. Their job is to set guidelines for the schools. It's not necessarily to say, you need to teach this particular curriculum, and that's not what we're asking them for. We're asking that they 
ensure that the resources that are needed are getting to the schools. This is Beth Thornton, and my guest today is Erin McNeil from Media Literacy Now. The first bill you worked on was in Massachusetts, where you're from, and that was in 2013? That was 2011. We start, I started in Massachusetts in 2011, got a bill introduced here, and found that it was going to take a long time. So, you know, we, we introduced, I got a bill introduced. And then when we found out there was going to be a hearing, I brought together some people to, to speak in front of the education committee. And it was very exciting because we had some, some great people to talk and, and present the issues to the lawmakers. And my hope was that we were getting media literacy onto the public policy agenda. And here we were speaking to the policymakers and they were very engaged. They were asking questions. So I thought, okay, this is great. We're going to move this forward. Um, and then it didn't go anywhere. So because there's just so many issues that policymakers are dealing with. So I realized, okay, we can't wait to um, make slow incremental progress in one tiny state. We need to really help people across the country to get started um, working with their policymakers and hoping that advocate or policymaker would come up with the right solution for right now. Um, and that is what happened. We saw that a group in Washington state with their, their legislator actually used a bill that had passed in Utah and they, they customized that for their state. And that became our model policy at the time. So that was one that then rolled out and was passed in several other states. So that was like the power of, <laughs> of putting this out to a, a, a bigger pool of people to think about and look for solutions. How many states now have media literacy legislation? You know, it's a complicated question because there's so many different ways that this is manifesting itself in different states. So maybe 16 states have taken some kind of action, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it directly goes uh, into the classroom. So there's still more work in terms of advocacy. My understanding is that a majority of Americans feel that this is important to teach young people, right? Most of the population is on board with a need for some form of media literacy or digital citizenship I would say that they are. Uh, according to our recent survey, 84% of adults in the United States would like to see media literacy required in schools. 84%. That's pretty high. 84%. That's very high. You don't see that a lot in, <laughs> in really any other area right now. So there's a lot of agreement. Yes. So why then is it so hard to get something in place? Media literacy is not a really simple subject, and it's not a it's not a an either or. You know, yes, it's there. No, it's not there. So, part of it is building up the understanding of what media literacy is, and then working to change standards, provide resources, provide professional development, so that teachers at all grade levels and all subject areas are prepared to teach media literacy. And that's going to take time. So it's, it's something that I feel like it's, 
incremental and we just would like to speed up the process. This is Beth Thornton. I'm talking with Erin McNeil from Media Literacy Now about legislation for media literacy education. Tell us a little bit about the bill that has been introduced by Senator Klobuchar on the national level. Were you part of that process and where does the bill stand? Any kind of update you can give us? Sure. Yeah, we did advise her staff on that bill. It was first introduced in the previous congressional session and then, of course, died at the end of that session and was then reintroduced in this session. Now, I don't know if that is going to move forward this year, but the bill does two very important things, in my view. Uh, One, it provides funding, grants for states to use to support media literacy education in whatever way the state needs. So it would allow them to develop curriculum and resources. It would allow the states to put more money into professional development or teacher pre-service training. Um, And then another important thing that the bill does is, again, it elevates media literacy as a priority. If Congress votes in favor of this bill, it shows that, yes, we take this seriously as an important way to prepare our young people for for citizenship in a democracy. Uh, It's also very important for our national security. It's important for our public health. Passage of the bill would show that our leaders in this country care about what's important for young people and for our future. You've dedicated the last decade to this work, and you even named your organization Media Literacy Now, and that was more than 10 years ago. Thanks for noticing that. (laughs) (laughs) So do you feel that it is finally becoming a priority? Just even that the Senate is considering this bill, is that uplifting for you? Do you feel that people are beginning to recognize that these skills are needed? Well, when I first started, um, actually in 2011, as we mentioned in Massachusetts, uh, I, I just... I wanted to see media literacy on the public policy agenda. There were so many other issues that we're talking about, and this affected all of them, whether it's, you know, climate change or income inequality or transportation, housing issues, all those things. All of these things are affected by media literacy. It wasn't being talked about. And now I believe that we we have played a part in getting media literacy onto the public policy agenda. People are talking about it, even if they're debating it, even if they're fighting it. It's on the agenda, which is such a big advance. People are understanding what it is. They've heard of it even. So this is this is new. Um, people have heard of media literacy. They do understand it to some extent. Um, we are seeing many more policymakers paying attention, elevating media literacy, endorsing media literacy education. Do you have advice for people who want to get more involved and advocate for this in their states or at their schools? People should certainly come to our website, get themselves a little bit more educated on what media literacy is, go to the Take Action page, um, find out some ways that they can immediately get to work in supporting media literacy and really sort of build their advocacy efforts. That was a conversation with Erin McNeil from Media Literacy Now. The website is medialiteracynow.org. For Issues and Ideas, I'm Beth Thornton. 
This is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. I'm Carol Tangeman. I recently sat down with Orchestra Novo's Michael Novak to talk about their upcoming performance. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to have you here. And I think that your latest performance just sounds really interesting. Show people and the orchestra will be performing with a silent film from 1928 with Marion Davies. Tell us about the show. Well, uh, one of the things that Orchestra Novo does is we extend the boundaries of what symphony orchestras normally do. So, for instance, if you go to hear normal symphony, the L.A. Philharmonic or the San Luis Obispo Symphony or the Cleveland Orchestra, you're probably going to get an overture, and then you'll probably have a soloist or a tone poem or a symphony, and then you'll have a soloist, a rock a piano concerto, and that's your program. And that's been a traditional layout pretty much for hundreds of years. People go and hear these concerts in that fashion. When Orchestra Novo was founded, we thought we would just try different things. And one of the things that we enjoyed doing very much are doing movie soundtracks with a live orchestra. So, for instance, a few years ago, we did The Wizard of Oz at the Performing Arts Center. What they do is they take the music out of it. Everything else is there. And then you replace it with live performances. Correct. So there's, you know, the Munchkins are singing and Dorothy's singing and all the songs are there and the conversation's there. They pluck the soundtrack out and we play it live. A couple years later, we did the same thing with the movie E.T. They took it out. We added it. This production is a little bit different because it's actually a silent film. So there was only whatever music was happening in the theater at that time. So if it was an organist or a pianist or something, they would create the music to the silent film as it was happening. There was a famous quote by Irving Thalberg, who was mm-hmm. a famous director and producer uh, down at MGM, and it was on the wall when we used to go into the music studio. It said, there never was a silent film. Music always played an important part in every movie. I would think the music could expand emotion and create suspense. Oh, yeah, it sets up all the action that's happening. Yeah. So if it's sad or happy or, you know, bombastic or tender, you know, that's all all the ingredients that put it together emotionally for you while you're watching. Yeah. And so uh, the movie Show People I Have Done Before, it's a 1928 silent film starring Marion Davies who, if you all know, was uh, William Randolph Hearst's companion up at Hearst Castle for many, many years. She was uh, originally a Ziegfeld Follies girl, and when she was 19, Hearst happened to catch her at a performance and uh, went back night after night after night for a month and sat in the very front row and watched. And I guess that could be a little bit uncomfortable, seeing some guy always showing up there. Oh, yeah. Who's that guy? Well, that's Hearst. Oh. And he was a large figure, so yeah. you couldn't, he wasn't hiding behind chairs, and he was right. in the front row. Anyway, uh, he was in his 50s and um, fell madly in love with her. And so uh, he promised that he would create a career for her because he thought she had great talent. And that's what he did. He started a production company, uh, Cosmopolitan Pictures for Marion Davies. They did many movies that he produced. And she became the number one female box office star in the 1920s. By 1924, she was at the top of the game, mostly because he promoted her. 
in his papers and in the theaters. Right. And he owned all that publicity. I have heard, though, and seen, she's pretty funny. Oh, and she's really good. Was smart as a tack, you know? From you can what tell. Oh, you yeah. can tell. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think Show People is a really wonderful movie. It really does get to show her comedic talents. Interestingly enough, the local connection also has King Vidor involved because he was the producer and director on this film because he used to live in Paso Robles at the end oh, of his did. life. So there is that. Yes, love the local tie well. in. Uh-huh. Hearst wanted uh, Marion Davies to have a, a serious acting career. And she did quite a few. But King Vidor found that she had a great sense of humor. And I think show people really shows it off. It's a takeoff, they say, on Gloria Swanson's life. Mm -hmm. And it's a a sweet film because she starts off just sort of as a comedy actress. And she gets sprayed in the face with seltzer bottles and things like that. But in the movie, she goes towards the serious part of it. She wants to have love scenes and things like that. And then, of course, she gets an arrogance about her now. Yes, as one would. Not at the bottom anymore. She's going to the top. It changes her, of course. And her old buddy, Billy, notices it because he's been crazy about her. And before she runs off with the... uh, Wait, don't tell us. Are you about to give uh, the plot away? Not really. <laughs> okay, then go on. No, I was just going to say, <laughs> just before she goes off to marry the, the serious actor, Billy comes back to remind her who she really is. And Sounds it's, fun. It, it's very, very sweet that way. Sounds like a romp, <clears throat> you know? just a Well, we did fun. it uh, a few years back with the symphony. We, had, we actually did it up in Hearst Castle in the theater, inside the, the, the castle itself. Oh, yes, the one with the cushy chairs. The big the cushy front. chairs, people yeah. People used to sit in uh, during we, Hearst's heyday. And there's one super big cushy chair, number one chair off to the left for him. And it had a phone, telephone, it probably still does, right next door, yeah. just in case he needed to make any calls. Of course. Had to, uh, had to be on, a newspaperman. He was on 24-7. Truly, yeah. Well, this sounds like fun. What is it like as a conductor to conduct an orchestra with a silent film? I mean, what is that? That's got to be different. Well, it's a lot of fun. Well, it's uh, terrifying, of course, because um, we're not using any kind of a click track or a metronome uh, in our ears. You know, when I work in Hollywood for studios now and doing movies, we always have an earphone that has a, a tempo. So it's click, click. We all know what the tempo is. And if it goes to another tempo, then we know what the new tempo is. But I just have to find those out of thin air. Are you watching the film? I am. I'm watching the You're silent film. facing the screen. Yeah. And the orchestra's facing you. That's it. Okay. And then I've marked in all 436 pages of the score, which are a lot, everything that's happening on the screen. The music has to be exactly here by the time she gets in the car. By the time he walks okay. across the, the lawn. These are visual cues to they you are. instead of something that you're hearing. Yeah, they are. And wow. and what I have to do is uh, connect the tempos to the soundtrack that was written for it, because there is a soundtrack out there, and I've been practicing to that. I have to put down exactly how fast we're going at any given moment. And especially in these movies that have a lot of action and comedic action, things change quickly. Yeah. People go slow, and all of a sudden they go whoop, they're fast, and then and then we have to go fast. Oh my goodness! It's kind of like a high 
high-wire act, you know? Yes, I yes. mean, there's a thrill. The people, I would never go up on a high-wire, but I would do it for a silent film in that sense where I'm, you know, just working without a net, really. Yes. I like doing it. I mean, I, it's hard work. It's really hard work, super concentration. But when all the elements come together and you hear the audience responding with laughter or whatever, you know that you've, you've done it. You've made it, you know? Yeah. And, of course... Movies like Wizard of Oz had so many moments where you actually had to hit something perfectly. When the house lands out of the tornado mm-hmm. cyclone and hits the ground, you have to be there for that landing. If you're early, it sounds bad, and then if you're late, it sounds worse. So, Do you find that the musicians are watching you even more carefully than usual to yes, make they sure are. they get your cue? Yeah, because sometimes I have to jump. If I'm behind, then I have to jump ahead. And so I, I kind of make a, a motion with my hands like, we're going to go ahead now. Okay. We're jumping ahead. So watch me. And then somehow everybody seems to find where we're, we're jumping to. It's kind of interesting. I bet they enjoy it, too. The orchestra. I think so. I mean, I th- I've never heard of somebody say, boy, I really didn't like doing that. They all go, that was a great project. Yeah, yeah. Or E.T. was so much fun. Or, um, and, and show people will be the same thing. It's, it's, it's really good music uh, written by an English composer named Carl Davis. Mm-hmm. When did he write it? It was later 1982. on, right? It was 1982. 1982. Okay, so he wrote a score for it. Right. There are other scores for it as well. The one we're doing is Carl Davis' score. And I like that music a lot. I think he really did a great job of setting up different tunes for different characters. So if the bad guy comes in, here's his music. If Grandpa's in there, he's got his music. Marion Davis' music, and Billy has his tunes, and there's the love theme, and it's really well done. If you're just joining us, I'm Carol Tangerman. My guest today is Michael Novak. Artistic Director of Orchestra Novo, and we're talking about this upcoming performance. It's called Show People, and the orchestra will be performing with a silent film starring Marion Davies from about 1928. It's at the Quest to Pack on Sunday, October 30th, 4 p.m. Now, you actually have been a conductor in the movie industry for like over 20 years. And it's true. I saw a list with the movies that you've conducted. Life of Pi, I'm not going to name the whole list, obviously. The Fault in Our Stars, Kite mm-hmm. Runner, Under the Tuscan Sun, Fences, my favorite, The Mexican. The uh, Mexican, huh? You like that it. one? Oh, that movie, yeah. yeah. You, oh, great. That was my very first real movie, uh, music by Alan Silvestri. And I was slated to be in the orchestra because I play viola, and I have played many, many hundreds of soundtracks. And I was just getting ready to go to work, and the phone rang, and it was the contractor saying, Mike, I need you. Alan is sick. He's got the flu, and he can't conduct. So, you know, it's one of those moments where you go, okay. Luckily, having a lot of experience with conducting San Luis Obispo Symphony and other orchestras, it wasn't so difficult for me to get in front of these people. And a lot of, obviously, these are my colleagues from me sitting in the orchestra. So they were actually rooting me on. They wanted me to do a good job. And that helps, right? That helped a lot, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, that one led to other ones. And so I love the motion picture industry. I, I love symphony orchestras. I love Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms and all those wonderful composers. But I also like working in the, in the studios in Hollywood because every piece of music you play is a world premiere. 
it's never been played before. The composer has just finished writing it. Mm, yeah. And so you're getting it hot off the press. You're, the music is being passed out. You look at it and you go, wow, okay. First time ever. Yeah. And so that's the excitement about it. What has kept you from just, you know, going Hollywood? I uh, loved when I first came up here in 1984 to uh, audition for the San Luis Obispo Symphony. I fell in love with the area. And I need both parts of this uh, musical life to fulfill me. I I don't want to just be conducting Orchestra Novo or the Santa Maria Philharmonic because I'm also a player. And so when I go to L.A., I'm, I'm a player. And so I'm one of the people that's creating the music. Conductors don't create the music. The players create the music. And so I get a great fulfillment out of sitting in the orchestra and playing my instrument with my colleagues and seeing the effect that it has around the world. I remember talking to a mentor many years ago about, you know, what about L.A.? Should I stay in L.A.? And should I go up to San Luis Obispo? And she said, it doesn't matter where you are because your music is going to be heard all around the world. And I, and I never really thought about it until I realized these pictures are seen everywhere and they have emotional effect on people everywhere. The performance that's coming up Next, with Orchestra Novo, is a show people, and the orchestra will be performing with the silent film from 1928, Bold Marion Davies starring. And this is at the Quest to Pack on Sunday, 4 o'clock, October 30th. How do we get tickets? Well, the best way to go is uh, to our website, orchestranovo.org. You can also find us on 805 Ticks as well. My guest today, Michael Novak from Orchestra Novo. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. It's time for the nonprofit story. This is Dr. Consuelo Mukes, your host. I'm excited today to bring you Chinda Lore. She is the executive director of the Slow Botanical Garden, whose uh, mission is to honor and preserve our connection with nature. And Chinda is here to tell us all about the garden. Chinda. Welcome to the nonprofit story. That's a lot of expectation that you just set on us, Consuelo. Well, I know you can In do it. In 15 minutes. That's right. And we're going to get it done. Yeah. So thanks for coming today. Yeah. Thanks for um, having me. Meeting with us. I know the garden is busy and the garden is growing. Mm-hmm. So let's start with telling about the garden for those that might need a little background. And then we're going to talk about what you're really up to. Yeah. So the garden has an operating agreement with the County of San Luis Obispo to operate on 150 acres of El Choro Regional Park property. Mm-hmm. So we are an, uh, a nonprofit, um, friends of the San Luis Obispo Botanical Garden is who I work for, mm-hmm. and um, we offer uh, about eight acres of cultivated um, display gardens, different themes. We have a display garden, we have a fire safe garden demonstration garden and children's garden, which is amazing, Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. very hands-on, a very uh, much learned by doing and touching and feeling and tasting and (laughs) and smelling. And um, we have the uh, Chilean wine palms. We have the largest wine palm grove outside of Chile. And we have a restoration garden, which is our newest installation. It's two acres of California native plants that have some medicinal and herbal usages um, and also for weaving 
that's why it's called the Weaving Restoration mm-hmm. Garden for crafting this and is- our Shumash education area. That's wonderful. Wow. Well, we'll have to break those down a little bit so people can understand how they can enjoy those uh, gardens. Yes. So first, tell us, where are you located? I know you said in the El Churro area, but where is that specifically if we wanted to get there? It's on Highway 1, um, right between Morro Bay and San Luis Obispo, across mm-hmm. the street from Cuesta College. Okay, that's so a great landmark. Yeah, right next to Dairy Creek Golf Course. So is there a fee to get in, or can we just walk in, or what? Um, right now, the season, there's no day-use fee to walk in to the um, to actually go into the park, but there is admissions. We do charge $10 for adults, and um, children 12 and under are always free. There are military and student discounts and senior discounts, and if you're a member, you get in free. So yeah. I think you've been around for quite a while, right? How did it get mm-hmm. started? The garden started as a Cal Poly um, senior project. Um, Eve Vigil, our founder, mm-hmm. who is still very much involved with the garden in so many different ways, uh, she started this as her ornamental horticulture senior project. That was 1989. Mm-hmm. Do you work mm-hmm. with Mediterranean plants? Is yes, that correct? That is what correct. What makes that different than other botanical gardens maybe well we are one of the few so um, Ventura Botanical has a very similar theme to our garden Mm -hmm. but we have a very different terrain so we feature a lot of different plants than they would we feature plants from Australia and Chile and the Mediterranean basin and South Africa and also of course most of our garden is California natives so those are things that are very specific then to us here in our region? Yes, because the Mediterranean climate zone is actually less than 2% of the world's landmass has this mm. particular very moderate dry summers, five months of wet winters. We have an average of about 20 um, inches of rain per year, mm-hmm. and we hardly ever get any temperatures below freezing or even mm-hmm. at freezing, and it doesn't get extremely, extremely hot here in the summertime. There's coastal influence. Mm-hmm. And if That's... you come to the garden, you can actually learn a lot more about it than what I'm going to tell you today, because <laughs> well, there's I'm... a lot to cover. We don't have time, so we're going to yeah. have to come. And exactly. We're going to talk about some yeah. special things that yeah. are happening. Uh, we look at our particular environment, and mm-hmm. we don't understand how it makes it very, well, some don't understand how it makes it very different than other parts mm-hmm. of the world when you say only 2%. Yes. Do you get people from a lot of different areas coming in? The last time we collected this type of data, and I'm working on collecting it again, was in 2019, the mm-hmm. last normal year of operations for the garden. We had people from five different countries represented that recorded their visit on these log sheets that were wow. pretty archaic, and mm-hmm. also 27 different states wow. in the U.S. come to visit our garden and log their visit. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of visitors that don't log their visits, but nowadays it's very common to hear foreign languages spoken around the garden when um, among our visitors. Mm-hmm. So our goal is to become a world-class botanical garden that attracts people from all over the world. And we have gotten lots of plant nerds 
that can find our plants on our worldwide database because uh, uh-huh. we accession. That's a pretty big word that I learned when I started at the garden four years ago, um, that we catalog our plants. So we are really a plant library, yeah. a living plant museum. Besides making connections with nature, we are an education facility. Mm-hmm. There's something for everyone of all abilities. We are making our trails and um, displays more accessible to more people mm-hmm. with wider trails and displays that are catered to people that mm-hmm. have different abilities. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we do have a sensory garden. Mm-hmm. The children's garden is essentially a, a sensory garden, and so is our display garden. That We have um, had tours for the Go See mm-hmm. Foundation there. Mm-hmm. They are a local organization for the sight impaired, and our awesome docent, Ken Levine, gave them a really amazing several hours actually tour of the display garden just using other senses besides sight. And then I know that you also do have some um, Mm -hmm. areas for the handicapped um, who might need a wheelchair. Yes, the areas throughout most of the children's garden are is suitable to to wheels. Mm-hmm. We say wheels because there are okay. strollers too. Okay. Um, yes. We have lots of parents with strollers. Mm-hmm. All the area around our education center, the buildings that um, are occupy our front um, entrance, uh, is all accessible. And throughout our fire safe garden, up to a certain like a hundred feet away from the main uh, display. And then also the, the entire two acres of the display garden is very accessible. Everybody feels welcome. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you a little bit about the fire safe landscape display. We have two acres that was done a design in collaboration with Cal Fire and the Fire Safe Council. The garden is approximately seven, eight years old, and it displays plants and information boards of what techniques to use and what types of plants to plant around your building or home to keep it fire safe. If you are just joining us, this is The Nonprofit Story, and I am your host, Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and I'm here talking with Chinda Lore. She is the executive director of the Slow Botanical Garden. You're having an art in the garden. It's November 5th and 6th is when it's open to the public with an artist opening on that first Friday the 4th. So check out the website for that event. We're having 35 local artists. So lots of artwork and crafts being sold and it benefits the local artists and also benefits the garden because we get a percentage of their sales. So I always get my holiday presents during this event and I have a family all over the country that I mail stuff too. So it's quite lovely um, that they get something local from me that's made by somebody's hands here and we're supporting the local artists and the botanical garden. That must be a beautiful sight to see all the art in that beautiful garden. It's going to be really fun because we are also having live music and food and we will be serving wine and beer also. So it's very family friendly. We're controlling how many people are able to enter so you have a better experience when Mm -hmm. you visit and it's not so crowded. I see that 
you do botanical research? Yes, I. It's a place for plant nerds. I'm actually <laughs> a plant nerd. That's part of my background is biology and wow. landscape design. So I love that aspect of the garden. We have a full uh, licensed retail nursery mm-hmm. at the garden. Our propagation program is run by volunteers. We're looking into hiring a staff horticulturalist, so mm-hmm. that's going to come about in the next several months. Um, look out for that position if you're a plant nerd mm-hmm. and want to work in an amazing place. We offer a book that the garden has produced called 128 of Our Best, and oh. PG&E <laughs> is our sponsor for printing up the latest batch of 128 of Our Best. And the, the book is a resource for landscapers and homeowners and whoever loves plants and wants to plant them around their house, their home or business. It features our 128 best plants that have been tested and successful in the ground in our area. Then you also have other events that the community uh, would want to be involved with. I know you have like yoga. Uh, we have yoga with Cheryl Wakefield Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday mornings. There's a garden club that's starting, and that's a mentoring program for children of all ages. And I say that all ages because you'll be matched with um, others that are not of your age mm-hmm. to um, learn more about the garden and engage in the garden. There's a docent program. We have a dozen committees that run anything from the library, because we have a reference library for research, to outreach, to planning, um, and science committee, if you really want to get into the the weeds of plants. <laughs> so is this uh, sometimes a place where people can volunteer? We love our volunteers. We have mm-hmm. hundreds of volunteers that, that help the, run the garden's daily operations, eight full-time equivalent staff members run the garden and we could not be successful without the help of our hundreds of volunteers. And we have about 150 volunteers that come weekly and do work with us weekly to anywhere from doing the maintenance or propagation Mm -hmm. to, um, to, you know, like I said, library and accessioning and um, planning and science committees and um, so and many interpretation. Mm-hmm. We do mm-hmm. the docent program. You'll be trained to be a docent. So mm-hmm. you, if you really want to learn more about plants in the garden uh, or plants in general, um, become a docent. We have specialty children's garden or children's docents mm-hmm. that get special training with Millie and um, and nature-based education um, techniques to, to be able to lead do- um, trainings with a lot of children that come to visit the garden in busloads every year. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. We had last year was, a, you know, COVID partial. Mm-hmm. We still had hundreds of children benefit from our free docent-led programs. We also have a building, a sustainable mm-hmm. building. It is built to gold lead standards. Mm-hmm. And it's a straw bale constructed building, which is really unique. If you don't know what that is, come and visit and check out the gardens um, buildings. Uh, it's built to maintain uh, m- almost all of its own heat with a high heat mass around the walls and the floor and the ceiling. So it's really well insulated, but also has a ventilation system that cools it down Mm. too um, really well. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's passive solar design, which I love Mm. because that's my background too, is 
is construction, design, and development. And so I know um, you love that. I've been in that it's beautiful super building. Fun. Yeah. And uh-huh. uh, I just have to make a shout out to Ed Siliklis, um at Cal Poly. Uh, he um, was part of, uh, actually played the major role in getting us a, a prototype of his uh, shell. It will be a shade structure, mm-hmm. but um, a, a larger shade structure but right now he calls it the doghouse but we call it the reading cave Mm -hmm. and it's been installed in the children's garden so if you're into innovative design and construction this is on the forefront of design and construction techniques right here in san jose obispo right exactly wonderful yeah and cal poly and cal poly wonderful i don't think we've touched on nature nights and that's coming up Tell us about Nature Nights. Oh, Nature Nights is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, Cody Kava, our, the lighting designer for um, Cambria Christmas Market, mm-hmm. is designing uh, and installing our Nature Nights programming um, displays. That's exactly what it is. It's connecting with nature at night. So the program will run from November 11th through mid-January. And uh, it'll run Thursday through Sundays from 5 to 8 p.m. Tickets are on sale right now online. We've sold a bunch already. So please get your tickets soon. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's... uh, Lights, eight acres of the developed garden will be lit up, and we have uh, Bryn Forbes, large-scale artistic projections mm. that'll be projected on our hillsides mm. and, uh, and our buildings, and then it'll also include featured um, Michael Riddell's wire sculptures, so he oh. makes these life-size wire sculptures of figures, um, there's an owl too so interaction between nature and art and nocturnal world at Mm. night so it's it's going to be really awesome tracy strand the producer of sensorio is producing this event and um, we have cody kava like i said from cambio christmas markets if people want to help the garden in any other way Mm. can they maybe give you a donation or do something else (laughs) maybe become a member how does that work yes you can do all that okay become a member come to our programs visit tell your friends about it and donate Mm -hmm. because we need to keep the lights on literally and to keep the staff going operational funds are so needed to run this garden and to support the programming that we offer to the public every day of the week. Did you know that we're open whenever there's sunlight? (laughs) Well, we do now. Yeah, and and also like starting in November, even beyond sunlight. So (laughs) there's a lot to do. And this has at the San Luis Obispo Mm -hmm. Botanical Garden. And and we're so happy to have had today Jen Delore. She is the executive director of the Botanical Garden. Please visit slobg.org. It's slobg, San Luis Obispo Botanical Garden.org. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you, Chenda. This is the Nonprofit Story. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments 
kcbx.org.